Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about loneliness, do a bit of tech talk on inverters, and why you may not want one. We will talk about stick-on window deflectors, which work surprisingly well. And we're finally going to discuss that sunstone mining we mentioned in the last episode. So let's get going. Actually, the very first thing we're going to talk to you about is a video I came across on Facebook just yesterday. A woman by the name of Rebecca, Rebecca with a Q, has a YouTube channel called Survive Van Life. And on there, she has posted a video called Van Tour, an honest van tour, solo female van life. Now, what I've come to learn is that Rebecca has lived in her Ford Econoline conversion van for about 18 months. Unlike what you may see on Instagram, her home does not look like it just came out of House Beautiful. It looks like a very practical and lived-in van. That is to say, it does not look like a pristine tiny house. It looks like a comfortable place for someone to live. And she has been kind enough to share a, a rather humorous and impromptu video of what it's like to do something very mundane in the van, such as changing your sheets. So if you're thinking about van life or you want a perspective on actual, real van life, I highly recommend you check out Rebecca's video. I'll have links in the show notes and on the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash, you guessed it, built to go. It, it, it is definitely more honest than a lot of the stuff you'll see on Instagram. And thank you, Rebecca, for making such a video. Okay, but the real topic for today is actually loneliness. Van life can be a very solo activity. A lot of people out there cruising around our lands are in the vans by themselves. And I am usually one of those. My van was built primarily for one person. My wife does come with me occasionally, and that works, but in my tiny van, we have to do a setup where I sleep in the back and she sleeps up front. Fortunately, she is the right size for sleeping up front because I could never do that. I did a two-week trip last year that took me thousands of miles from home into the desert southwest where there were no people. I would go days without speaking to anybody. You would think that that would be a very lonely experience. But for me, honestly, it isn't. I don't get lonely in my van. I see people just as often as I'd like to. Now, I, uh, I grew up an only child. I grew up in an environment where I was alone much of the time, and I learned to entertain myself. I learned to be entertained by myself. And that seems to suit this van life thing, where I am on the road for days at a time without talking to anybody. Now, for other people, this is a bigger problem. They're not used to being by themselves all the time and not having anybody to talk to. So what do they do? Well, the most common solution to loneliness in van life is to have a dog. Dogs love van life. They seem to be well-suited to vehicles. They help keep you warm at night. They're an excellent security system. So if your lifestyle is such that you can and want to have a dog, that's a great way to handle things. Um, there's also the phenomenon of the internet. Maybe you've heard of it. Social media. People are always posting these shots of everybody at the train station looking down at their phones and saying, oh, look how disconnected America is now. Nobody talks to each other. 
Well, what do they think people are doing on those phones? They're connecting. They're talking to people. They're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else social media there is out there, sharing ideas, laughing with their friends, and you can do that in your van just the same. No, it doesn't matter if you're at home in your living room, if you're on your toilet, if you're in a van. Facebook is the same experience. And for a lot of people, that is a way to feel connected. Uh, I know that's true for me. If I'm without internet for a few days, I do tend to feel a bit more disconnected. Now, but that doesn't let me feel lonely. I feel that those are different feelings. Another way to stay connected while you're living alone on the road is to join a national, what they call, fraternal organization. There are many, and they uh, focus on many different things. Uh, it used to be that there were all these clubs, and they probably still exist, but there was the International Order of Oddfellows, and the Eagles, and the Masons, and the Shriners, and Moose, and VFW. And, and all these organizations have changed over time, but Either they still exist or something has taken their place. I belong to an organization called Team Rubicon, and this is a nonprofit disaster response organization founded by veterans with a focus on veterans, but that actually allows everybody in. I, I am not a veteran. Because of my time with Team Rubicon, I know people all over the country, and there are events happening all over the country. So if I'm ever on the road and I'm feeling a bit disconnected and want to hang out with people, it's easy for me to go into our calendar and see where there's a vent and go. And go. Uh, that's something I have. There's also Meetup. Meetup may not be as popular as it once was, but Meetup is designed for you to just find a meeting and show up. And almost every major city or even not so major city has some kinds of meetups. And if you can't find anything that's of interest, you can almost always find a meetup that's just about trying a new restaurant. And heck, anybody can do that. So there are ways to mitigate it. But the philosophy of being alone and that leading to loneliness is definitely a matter of who you are as a person and what you've been through. And everybody reacts to it differently. If you are someone who is bound to feel lonely, I urge you to take steps to counter that. Else you may find yourself at 3 o'clock in a parking lot of an abandoned strip mall with a flat tire and thinking it is the worst moment of your life, whereas somebody who isn't feeling lonely might just think, eh, that's a pain, I'll fix it. I'm going to be completely honest with you here, too. While I don't tend to feel lonely now, I probably would have when I was younger. I, As I get older, I find that my feelings about relationships and such change. I think most people go through that. But what I do notice about myself on these long trips is that I get very strange... Um, my social interactions, which are limited to buying gas and gum at a store or ordering from a McDonald's or something like that, end up being very odd. I throw in little comments and my manner is strange. And even though I'm observing myself doing these things, they just kind of happen. So I have this little concern that if I actually was gone for months, I would come back completely insane. That's not impossible, and it's kind of funny, but it actually isn't a joke. I need to be around people enough to stay grounded, and being out in the van for a long time actually ungrounds me, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's Actually, it's neither good nor bad. It's just something that needs to be managed for me. Everybody has different experiences, and of course, there are an awful lot of people out there 
who aren't doing van life alone in any way at all. They're out there with a partner, they're out there with kids, or they're part of a van community where they're out there with other people in vans. Uh, You can hear a number of podcasts. Uh, Here's a good one, for example, Humans of Van Life, a podcast out of um, northwestern Canada, where the host just goes around and interviews other people living in vans, and you get the sense that they all live together, and they pretty much do. It's almost like a commune of vans. So, hey, loneliness is an issue for people who aren't in vans. Loneliness is an issue for everyone. If you are feeling lonely... It may not be your fault that you're feeling lonely, but unfortunately, it is your responsibility to do something about it. And there are things you can do. And the number one recommendation I have, if you're feeling lonely, is to volunteer somewhere. Go help out at a food bank. Go help out at a veterinary shelter for some sort of animal. Uh, There are tons of volunteer opportunities, and you will find that volunteers are the friendliest, most gregarious, and most caring people you are ever going to encounter. That's what I found with Team Rubicon. It's what I found with Habitat for Humanity. It's what I found at the Harry Chapin Food Bank in Lee County, Florida, or the Greater Chicago Food Depository, all these places. There's something about working with people on a common cause that kills loneliness dead. It just squashes it flat. So I do think van life does tend people to feel more lonely than any other kind of life. But but van life also offers some opportunities to combat loneliness. If you were housebound and lonely in your living room, you actually have fewer resources than if you're lonely in a van. So just think about that. Don't let loneliness scare you off from trying out van life. It is a manageable problem. But don't expect van life to eliminate any loneliness that you already have. You are going to bring your baggage with you. But with the van, hopefully, you'll be able to store some of it. Okay, let's talk about some tech talk. All right. It seems to me that everybody who jumps into van life will pull up some website that says, here's how you wire your van. And they're usually folks who are afraid of electricity, which is reasonable. Electricity can burn your van down. It can shock you. If you don't understand it, it can be scary. Uh, And all of these things have like this kind of premium build where you've got... You've got the split charge relay or the battery-to-battery charger. You've got 400 watts of solar, and then that comes down to an MPPT controller, and then that goes to a battery monitor, and then if you're lucky, you've got some lithium batteries, and then that comes out to an inverter, and then you've got a household plug where you can plug in anything you have in your house. Well, that is all great and wonderful, but if you're on a budget of time or space or money, any of those things, that may not be the greatest way to go. Take a step back and figure out what you need. You generally need a way to cook. You need a way to heat water, which is often the same thing. You need a way to stay warm. You need a way to refrigerate things, which is optional. And you need a way to charge your devices um, and power your lights and things like that. What an inverter does is it takes 12 volt DC and converts it to household current. So in the U.S., that would be about 110 volts AC, or in the U.K., it would be maybe 220 volts AC. That sounds great, because what you're doing is you're taking your power in your van and converting it so you can plug in anything you have at home. 
That way you don't have to think about anything. You just take your household things and plug them in and you're great and it's good to go. And it's not true. <laughs> that is not really how it works. Yes, it's technically true, but let's take a case in point. Let's say you want to have a fan in your van. I highly recommend that. Now you've got a box fan sitting in your basement and all you need to do is find a way to plug that in. Well, if you get an inverter and install it in your van, you can plug that box fan in and it'll work. But it's using a ton more energy than if you just got a 12-volt van. So here's the truth about inverters. Depending on how efficient they are, they're only going to give you 80% of the power that you put into them. That's right. Every time you use your inverter, you're throwing energy away. Your battery will last a lot longer powering a 12-volt fan than it will powering a 110-volt fan. And that's true for lights or anything. What I decided to do in my van was to keep the entire van 12 volts. So everything in the van runs on 12 volts. I don't even have an inverter. Okay, that's not technically true. I do actually have two inverters, but I don't use them, and I'll explain that in a moment. My lights run on 12 volts. They go directly to a switch that goes directly to the battery. I actually have several sets of lights. I've got main lighting that I can dim. I've got accent lighting that I can make red if I'm trying to be in a uh, ability dark sky situation. And I have a spotlight for reading. All those run on 12 volts. I have a refrigerator, a compressor, chest-style refrigerator. Uh, uses the same refrigerating technology as the ones that you have at home, but it runs on 12 volts. So it uses very little power and it keeps things very, very cold. I have two fans. I, well, I've got several fans, actually. I've got one in the roof, and I've got one attached to the roof. They run on 12 volts. I have a hot water kettle. I can heat water anytime I want on 12 volts. I have a 12-volt oven. You can see where this is going. You can get almost everything you want in a 12-volt appliance, and you just leave that in the van, and that's where it lives. You don't actually need an inverter. So why have one? Now there are some times when you would want an inverter. When I said I had two inverters, what I actually have is I have my backup battery system, which is a, a briefcase battery, kind of like a Goal Zero, that has a built-in inverter. And I also have an, an old cigarette lighter plug inverter that plugs into the cigarette lighter. It's a 75 watts, which is it's very, very small. The only reason I have those is that the one that came with the backup battery is built in, so, you know, that's where that comes from. And the one up front I use specifically for one thing, and that is to charge my laptop while I'm driving. I have an older Mac, and the power adapter for the Mac uses 19 volts, so the easiest way for me to charge it is to actually invert it. But you can see how stupid this is. I'm taking 12 volts DC, converting it to 110 volts AC, and then converting that back down to 19 volts DC. There's a ton of power loss there. It is a dumb way to do it. But it works, and it's what I have. Given that I've just told you all this, why do people have these big fancy inverters in their rigs? I think a lot of them just don't know that it's not necessary. I think they just think as soon as they convert the power to household current, all their electrical problems are solved. But the truth is that inverters have limits. For example, my 75-watt lighter up front in my van has a normal-looking plug. Could I plug a hairdryer in there? No. 
The second I turned that hair dryer on, it would explode. I'd probably trip a fuse. If you look on a hair dryer, it'll tell you how many watts it uses. And it'll probably say 1500 or 1200. Well, I've got a 75 watt inverter. You can see that's nowhere near enough. So let's say, all right, you want to use a hair dryer. Uh, what size inverter do you need? Well, you would need either a 2000 or a 3000 watt inverter. Those are expensive. That's a few hundred bucks. And they will drain your battery really, really quick. Would it work? Yes. Can you get a 12 volt hair dryer? Yes. But this is where the problem lies. 12 volt hair dryers are terrible. They work, but if you're somebody with very long hair and you're used to combing out your hair with a hair dryer every morning, yeah, that is going to be tough with a 12 volt hair dryer. So if that's something that's super important to you, it might be worth it to invest in the extra batteries and the extra cost of an inverter. It's your rig. You should build it the way you want. But you should know that there's a 12 volt solution for almost everything, and it is going to be the most efficient way you go. And when I say almost everything, I'm talking about laptops that charge with USB-C. I'm talking about TVs that have bricks on them. Usually those bricks output 12 volts DC. You can throw the brick away and just run 12 volts into the TV. Uh, some video game systems uh, like Xbox and PlayStation, can this, you can do this with. Um, there's very little that you actually need an inverter for. But one of those things would be a microwave. I haven't seen a 12 volt microwave yet. And though they exist... 12-volt air conditioners, pretty much unicorns, but you're not going to be running AC off of your inverter either, most likely. If you decide that you definitely want an inverter, do your research. Uh, get a good one. The best ones say pure sine wave on them. The cheaper ones, like my 75-watt one, actually produce something called square wave which I won't get into the technical details now, but it is a less clean power and it can damage some electronics. A lot of people disagree with what I've just said. I'm just saying that from my perspective, it doesn't make sense to waste all the money and energy on an inverter. You can do it all with 12 volts, get more out of your power, and have the same results. So if you have a counterpoint or a counterargument, let me know at built2go.com. If you're an electronics expert or something like that, I'd be more than willing to have you on the show and we can talk about it. But hey... I'm doing fine with 12 volts, and I really haven't found a need for an inverter. Tales from the road. So I was driving up to Aurora, Maine. And you're catching on to the theme here. I seem to mention Aurora every episode. Yeah, there's a reason for that. But this time I was in Aurora, Maine, and this is up um, between Bangor and Callis. It's uh, kind of in the middle of the nowhere. There's really not much up there. It's in a very hilly, very nice area, lots of mountains, and the mountains are all green, and there, there are trees on the ridgelines, but they're generally, the mountains aren't completely covered with trees. What you're seeing is fields and fields and fields of blueberries. This is blueberry country, low bush blueberries. Um, they weren't in bloom when I was there, and there weren't any fruit, but the plants were there, and I, I could see them, and it was it really quite lovely. But there's nothing there in the way of business, except for a one restaurant slash ice cream stand on the top of the hill. And so, hey, <laughs> I like ice cream, so I, I go up and stop. And it was a, a little bit of an off day. It was the mid middle of the week and not really the high season. But there were these two young women there selling ice cream, and we had a fascinating conversation about what it was like to live in such a small town. 
I mean, this town doesn't have so much as a 7-Eleven. They do have a little general store, but grocery stores are half an hour away. Um, this is truly rural America, but it's rural America in Maine, surrounded by blueberries. And so clearly both of these people had an appreciation for the area. They, they were proud to be from there. They pointed out that just up the road was one of the most beautiful views in Maine called Whaleback Mountain, and that how they saw moose fairly often, and that, yes, it was cold, but everyone knew how to deal with the cold, so it wasn't that big of a deal. They talked a lot about how the tourists stop and how some days are crazy busy, they can't keep up with it, because it's a, it's a big route for motorcyclists, actually. Um, it's, a, it's on the what is called the airline, and it's a very pretty road up through Maine and New Hampshire, and actually goes all the way to Vermont. So I asked them about their futures. Uh, these were these were people who were just leaving high school and what they wanted to do, and I got a drastically different response from each of them. The first one talked about her family and how her family owned the store down the street and owned land there, and that this was home. It was a, a fact. There was no choice to be made. Aurora, Maine, was home, and she was going to live home. The thought of leaving there never crossed her mind. Um, she had some concerns about where she would work, but she has family in the area who own the farms, who own the store, and she's going to be fine. The other person who had also grown up in Aurora, had family in Aurora, but didn't have the close connections to the um, business community such that it was, was looking forward to getting out. She was going to go to college somewhere else. She wasn't sure she was going to leave New England, but Aurora would have a special place in her heart. But it wasn't home in the same sense that it was for this other person. And it was a really interesting contrast talking to the two. Both extremely nice, friendly folks, very happy to be where they are. But one had dreams of building up what they already had, and the other had dreams of building something new. I just thought it was a, it was a great contrast. And you could tell by these two people, one of them might end up in a van, and the other would never consider it. So no, no great denouement in the story. It was just another one of these experiences on the road where you get to see different sides of things only because you're willing to take the time and travel and talk to folks. Great ice cream, too. Okay, product review. So window deflectors, what does that have to do with van life? Well, everybody who's ever slept in a van has a problem, which is that in the morning, your front windshield is covered with dew and it's on the inside, and that air, that moist air that you're breathing out, that your dog is breathing out, that's coming from your propane appliances, is covering the front windshield, which is probably the coldest part of the van. And it condenses there, and in the morning, you can't see it out that front window, and that's a problem. So how do you mitigate that? Well, the best way to mitigate it is for ventilation, and uh, if you want to roll down your front windows a crack, that does a great job of this. But rolling down your front windows a crack makes your van vulnerable to being broken into. Uh, people can see that. People can uh, also see that you're living in the van if there's this mist on the window. So you want to try to prevent it. So one way that helps this problem is to get window deflectors. So these are pieces of plastic that go along the top of the side windows of your van. They come down an inch or so on the outside, letting you roll down your windows just a little bit so that you can't see that they're rolled down from the outside, but there's enough room in there for air to get in. There's all kinds of different sizes. 
and, and some of them are quite expensive. If you get a custom one built for your van that permanently installs, it could be as much as $75. I decided to go cheap. I got some that literally just stick on the side of the van and they fit, but it's not a perfect fit and uh, it's just fine. But hey, for 18 bucks, I figured what the heck, I'll put these things on, I followed the instructions, I alcoholed the, the outside and cleaned them and then pressed them on really hard. And then I went and drove um, over a thousand miles and I really did think they were just gonna fly off. But no, they stuck on and they seemed to be doing great. And then I did it, put it to the full test. I was, it was about 40 degrees out and I spent the night and I cracked the front windows. And when I woke up in the morning, there wasn't any window dew. I was kind of blown away by that. They actually seem to have worked. I think these are a thing worth having. They do alter the appearance of your van a bit. They, uh, you know, I have a white van uh, and these things are smoky black. So they, they kind of are noticeable if you're looking for such a thing, but not really. And I'm wondering about the summer where um, mosquitoes will find their way in. I'm, I'm imagining different ways to make screens or something like that. I haven't fully decided what to do there. Uh, for an $18 investment, you have an, uh, another nice ventilation option that you didn't have before. So I highly recommend them. I'll put a link in the show notes to the ones I got, but you're probably going to have to do a lot more research to find the ones for yours. All I'm saying is don't be afraid of the stick-on ones. They actually work. Okay, there are a lot of mines in the U.S., and when I say mine, you're probably automatically thinking putting on a helmet with the carbide light, and you've got your pickaxe, and you're going to be singing hi-ho and marching off into a hole in the mountain somewhere. No, that's not really the only way to do it. There are mines all over the country, and you can mine all kinds of different things, like uh, fossils and diamonds. We have a diamond mine in the U.S., there are places where you can mine coal, if that's really what you want to do. But the one I'm going to talk about today is a place where you can mine sunstones. Sunstones are these gems that uh, are formed in volcanoes. They have a yellowish color that, you know, that's where they get their name from. They look like the sun. And sometimes there are inclusions in there that are green or red, and that color radiates out and makes them quite beautiful. I have a friend who has a company called Discovery Gems. His name is Oak, O-K-E, and he knows where all these mines are, and he invited us out to this mine to check it out in southeastern Oregon, which is not like the Oregon of the coast. Southeastern Oregon is desert. It's the kind of place where you have to plan where you're going to get your gas, or if you have diesel, you have really better plan because I didn't see any diesel out there. But you go to this town, now you can look this up on a map called Plush, Oregon. And millions of years ago, there was a volcano there that brought all these sunstones to the surface. There is free mining there, and it looks like this. You, you find the mining site, which I'll have links to, but, you know, it's basically plush Oregon. And you park, and you dig. You're not going to be digging tunnels. This is a surface mining operation. So you'll dig down maybe a foot or so, and then sift and see what you find. Uh, some of these can be worth a couple thousand dollars if you find one that's big enough or has the most interesting inclusions. More realistically, you're gonna find some that are worth a few dollars, but I guarantee you're going to find some. Everybody comes home from this place with a bag full of sunstones. It's impossible not to. It's kind of fun too. If you look down at the ground, there are uh, ants that are making hills and their ant hills are made of little tiny sunstones in many cases. So it's a really interesting place to be. 
There's free camping in the area. And if you want a better experience, there are mines that you can pay for. One is Rainbow Mine. You go up and you just pay a fee, and they will give you choice material to go through. They have backhoes and stuff, and they know where the good stuff is. And they'll dig it up, and you can go through it, and you'll, you'll find much better stones. But, of course, you have to pay. But they do have free camping at those sites. In fact, uh, Rainbow Mines has a flush toilet and water, which are two things in <laughs> pretty rare supply in southeast Oregon. If you think you'd like to do something fun for a weekend, sunstone mining in southeast Oregon is a great idea. Plan well according to the weather. We went in May, and it was cold and rainy. It was fine, but it was cold and rainy. If you want to be warmer, kind of head towards June. And if you want to be dying in the heat, then you can go in August. So, links in the show note as always. All right, here's a quick resource recommendation. So um, like many people, I try to get everything from Amazon. You know, I have an Amazon card. They give me discounts. They're very, very good customer service. And yeah, maybe they're destroying the world. But if you're looking for a, uh, a particular part, take a look at etrailer.com. So that's the letter E followed by the word trailer.com. Uh, this is not a paid review or anything like that. They're just a, a very good, well-organized site for finding things like vents and strange parts uh, things that you would find on an RV or trailer. Uh, they have windows that you can put in, rubber molding, all that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for that, any kind of little part and you're struggling to find it on Amazon, absolutely head over to eTrailer.com, especially if it's related to towing, because you can buy the hitches there, you can buy the lighting kits, all of that. And uh, they've been very nice to me, and I've had no problems with them at all. So eTrailer.com, link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode seven. Next time we're going to talk about wall coverings. I know you're excited for that one, but we're also going to talk about um, a very strange trip I had to Aurora, North Carolina, a town known for its fossils. And we're going to do a product review of an AlphaCool 12 volt compressor refrigerator and recommend that you visit the lovely and odiferous town of Luling, Texas. Music is by Sir Mooj, a.k.a. Simon Wagg, as always, and we will talk to you soon.